Welcome to You News, the podcast using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Friday, June 4th. I'm Andrea Linares. These are today's headlines. The White House warning about the increasing threat of cyber attacks aimed at U.S. targets as it looks to combat the growing threat. This as President Biden begins a big final push to reach a vaccine milestone, but there's a growing disparity between some states and regions when it comes to getting those shots administered. And the Pentagon now discussing its findings about unusual aerial phenomena witnessed by military pilots saying there's no evidence those incidents involve extraterrestrial life. But what could they be? The possible explanations today on U News. We begin with that urgent warning from the White House on cyber attacks saying no company is safe from being targeted and asking businesses to take action. This comes after recent ransomware attacks targeting the nation's food and fuel supply. The White House is telling businesses to act now to protect themselves and their customers from hackers. A rare open letter was sent by the top cyber official on the National Security Council, Ann Neuberger, to business leaders nationwide, saying, We urge you to take ransomware crime seriously and ensure your corporate cyber defenses match the threat. The letter also warning in the wake of strikes to our food, energy and transportation systems that no company is safe from a crippling ransomware attack. The federal government under the leadership of President Biden has been stepping up to strengthen the nation's defenses against cyber attacks, but we can't do it alone. The government, however, is limited in what it can force companies to do. The Biden administration says it has told Moscow it expects the Russian government to crack down on cyber criminals operating inside Russia. I think there's an obligation on Russia's part uh, to make sure that uh, that doesn't uh, continue. The Justice Department also issuing new guidance for federal law enforcement. An internal DOJ memo signaling the department will prioritize ransomware attacks the same way it does terrorism. The government is going to have to step up and find ways to put pressure on these criminals. The Biden administration still advising targets to not give into hackers' demands. Our guidance continues to be from the FBI that companies should not pay ransom uh, because it incentivizes these attacks on other companies. This all comes in the wake of two recent disruptive ransomware attacks targeting major industries, most recently on global meat supplier JBS. And last month, the attack that shut down the Colonial Fuel Pipeline. In this case, a $4.5 million ransom was paid to get back up and running. Press Secretary Jen Psaki said the string of recent Russian cyber attacks by both government and criminal hackers will be a topic at President Biden's summit with Russian President Vladimir Putin in Geneva in two weeks. Meanwhile, President Biden is preparing to visit the United Kingdom and Brussels next week. This has his massive infrastructure plan faces an uncertain future at home. Let's go to Edwin Pitti, who's standing by in our Washington bureau with much more. Edwin. Andrea, everything is ready for Biden's first trip overseas as president of the United States and his visit to the UK starts in Cornwall for the G7 summit, which will take place between the 11th and 13th of June. While in the UK, Biden is scheduled to hold bilateral meetings with fellow G7 leaders, including Germany, France, 
Canada, Italy, Japan, and also a meeting with UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson. From there, he will be traveling to Brussels in Belgium to participate in the NATO summit on June 14th. And according to the White House, his focus will be on restoring U.S. alliances and revitalizing the transatlantic relationship. Meanwhile, here in the U.S., the White House and a group of Senate Republicans continue to negotiate on infrastructure package, but now House Democrats unveiled a $547 billion transportation bill, a step that shows how divided both parties are. President Biden met this week with Republican Senator Shelley Moore Capito of West Virginia and exchanged the White House described as constructive and frank. But today, Republicans are expected to make another counterpart on the bill. Democrats have a narrow majority and need votes from key moderates like West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, who said he wants his party leaders to engage more with Republicans. Take a listen. We need to do something in a bipartisan way. We can't continue on these types of projects because we were able to bring everything to fruition working through a bipartisan way. The Republicans didn't get everything they wanted the last time, as you recall. Mm -hmm. And basically, we're not going to get everything, but we can move forward. And the president has that desire and the urgency to get something big done. One of the sticking points of the bill, of course, is the overall price. Biden's original plan would have cost almost $2.25 trillion, but the White House offered to bring the price act down to $1 trillion. According to the White House, it is urgent to pass the bill because they need the $159 billion to fix roads and bridges, $400 billion to boost caregiving, $100 billion for workforce training, and $18 billion to upgrade veteran hospitals. Reporting live in Washington, Andrea, back to you. Have a good weekend. Thank you. Edwin Piti reporting from Washington, D.C. Thank you for that report and wishing you a wonderful weekend as well. Meanwhile, a new jobs report is out today showing that U.S. employers added 559,000 jobs in May. It's an improvement from April's sluggish gains, but still evidence that many companies are struggling to find enough workers. The Labor Department said today that the unemployment rate fell to 5.8 percent from 6.1 percent. Many large chains, including Amazon, Walmart, Costco and Chipotle, have raised starting pay to better attract applicants. Yet so far, those efforts aren't bearing much fruit. Now to more legal trouble for Congressman Matt Gates of Florida. According to new reports, prosecutors are investigating whether Gates actually obstructed their investigation into alleged sex trafficking. Rafael Rodriguez has the latest. Federal investigators are looking at whether Congressman Matt Gates or his associates have tried to obstruct an ongoing sex crimes investigation, according to sources familiar with the matter. This is bad news for Matt Gates on two levels, really. First of all, it is a federal crime and a serious one to obstruct justice. People get charged with obstruction of justice all the time. People go to jail simply for obstruction of justice. A source telling CNN that investigators have been told about Gates and an associate discussing a plan to visit Gates's ex-girlfriend in October of 2020. Investigators have also been provided material that suggests the woman may have been influenced when it comes to the investigation. The woman is seen as a critical witness in the probe as she was linked to the congressman in the summer of 2017 when he allegedly had sexual contact with a different woman who was just 17 at the time. 
Politico, which first reported the obstruction investigation late Wednesday, also says investigators are looking at a phone call Gates had with a witness in the sex crimes investigation. The call reportedly originated between the witness and Gates's ex-girlfriend, and the lawmaker joined at some point. The outlet did not report when the call took place or what was said. The congressman has repeatedly denied wrongdoing. I'm being falsely accused of exchanging money for naughty favors. In a statement, a spokesman for the lawmaker said Congressman Gates pursues justice. He does not obstruct it. After two months, there is still not a single on-record accusation of misconduct, and now the story is changing yet again. Rafael Rodriguez, U News. And a man with close ties to Matt Gates will be sentenced on August 19th. Former Florida tax collector Joel Greenberg pleaded guilty last month to six federal charges, admitting to a federal judge that he knowingly solicited and paid a minor for sex. The guilty plea came after he struck a deal with federal prosecutors to avoid some of the 33 other federal charges he faced, ranging from identity theft to fraud and bribery allegations. As part of the plea, Greenberg has agreed to give substantial assistance to prosecutors in their sprawling investigation into Matt Gates. That includes testifying at trials or in federal grand juries if needed and turning over all relevant documents he might have. Gates has not been charged and denies any wrongdoing. And turning to a great mystery in the sky, those unexplained sightings in recent years by Navy pilots. Sources saying it's not a secret U.S. technology, nor do they have evidence that these incidents show evidence of alien life. But as Grecia Lastra explains, a large number of questions remain unanswered. Well, it's getting close. The videos are mystifying, recorded by U.S. Navy pilots. But overnight, a U.S. official telling ABC News that these unidentified aerial phenomenon are not part of any super-secret government program or so-called black programs. <laughs> Seemingly ruling out one possible explanation for what looks like physics-defying devices caught on camera and other tracking equipment. My gosh! We're going against the wind. The wind's 120 knots to the west. And while videos like these <laughs> released by the military in 2020 are undergoing renewed scrutiny. According to a report in the New York Times, intelligence officials still cannot explain the unusual movements that have mystified scientists and the military. So what exactly is captured on camera? U.S. intelligence agencies will deliver a report to Congress at the end of the month that may offer some answers and raise more questions. But the Pentagon isn't saying much yet. And for some pilots, the encounters are anything but uncommon. Former Navy pilot Ryan Graves telling 60 Minutes he crossed paths with something routinely. Every day. Every day for at least a couple years. But the man formerly in charge of the Pentagon's Advanced Aerospace Threat ID program telling George whatever they are, the answer could be of most importance for national security. What we know is that these, whatever these aircraft are, are displaying beyond next generation capabilities. They can outperform anything that we have in our inventory. This is Grecia Lastra reporting for U News. 
Today, the Biden administration kicks off its month of action to boost vaccinations. This as the rate of daily vaccinations drops to its lowest point. Meanwhile, Dr. Anthony Fauci is speaking out after emails from early on in the pandemic surface. Lorraine Caceres has more. The Biden administration today kicking off a month-long push to increase vaccinations nationwide and reach the goal of inoculating 70% of all adults with at least one dose before the 4th of July. The one thing we want to make sure is that we don't declare victory prematurely and feel that because things are going in the right direction that we don't have to keep vaccinating people. We're on a really good track now to really crush this outbreak. And the more people we get vaccinated, the more assuredness that we're going to have that we're going to be able to do that. This as the seven day average of vaccination falls below 1 million for the first time. The CDC reporting 808,000 coronavirus vaccines have been administered since Wednesday. Will we get to that remarkable 70%? Um, I think we're probably going to get really close and I'm hoping we will get there. The higher we go, the better we're going to be at driving this virus away. We've got to remind people of these opportunities. Incentives for vaccines, if you haven't taken them, direct $50 gift cards. Opportunities to be in this cash slash lottery. The administration now also focusing on sharing vaccines with the rest of the world. The White House announcing Thursday that 80 million doses will be directed to other nations by the end of June. We made the decision to share at least 75% of these vaccines through COVAX. This will maximize the number of vaccines available equitably for all countries and will facilitate sharing with those most at risk. And we decided to share up to 25% of these vaccines for immediate needs and to help with surges around the world. We can share these 25% in a flexible way. Meanwhile, Dr. Anthony Fauci responding to criticism after the publishing of some of his emails from early on in the pandemic, where he argued masks were only effective for those infected. If we knew back then that a substantial amount of transmission was asymptomatic people, if we knew then that the data show that masks outside of a hospital setting are actually do work when we didn't know it. The controversy surrounding what he did or did not know about the virus's origins intensifying. On Twitter Thursday, Representative Stephen Scalise, the House Minority Whip, said he sent a letter to Democrats demanding Fauci testifies before Congress. And regarding children and vaccines, Dr. Anthony Fauci is saying that he's cautiously optimistic that children will be able to get vaccinated, younger than 12 will be able to get vaccinated um, by Thanksgiving. He is also saying that the CDC is also saying that even though infections right now among children are at their lowest point in eight months, they are seeing that from the teens that do get hospitalized, one in three will end up in the ICU you needing help to breathe. Andrea, back to you. Thank you, Lorraine, for that report. And one of the big questions ahead of this fall, will kids wear face masks when they return to in-person learning next school year? The CDC is signaling it may lift that recommendation over the summer. As of now, the agency recommends students wear masks in classroom settings. CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky said Thursday on Good Morning America that vaccination rates among children could change that. 
She says her agency is reviewing both COVID infection and vaccination rates. And joining us to discuss this latest signal from the CDC is Dr. Stella Safo. She's a primary care doctor in New York City. Welcome to You News, Dr. Safo. Thanks for having me. So what's your reaction to the CDC's Dr. Walensky saying that she believes guidance to wear masks at schools could be lifted before classes resume in the fall? As we just reported, infection rates for children are now low, but the CDC is also saying that reports show one out of three children who are hospitalized end up in the ICU needing some sort of breathing assistance. I think it's part of the new approach to COVID, which is, you know, cautiously optimistic. I think in the past, before we had the vaccines rolling out and over 50% of Americans having at least one vaccination, I think that we were just cautious and, and really scared about what would happen. And now that we're seeing the numbers of vaccinations spread and we're seeing the case rates go down, that optimism, I think, is warranted. And I think, you know, what we're seeing the CDC do is to, to kind of warn us ahead of time um, that things may change as they get more information. It's the right way to go because one of the things that we weren't so happy about as public health um, and, and you know, providers in the community is that when they announced, when the CDC announced that masks would no longer be needed for fully vaccinated folks, it felt sudden. And so what you're seeing here is that they're giving us a bit of a forewarning based on how the numbers look and the data and the rates going forward. We may not need to have, you know, um, young people wearing masks within schools. However, parents can always choose to have their kids wearing masks if you're more comfortable. When it comes to child safety and health, do you have any concerns that adults and even parents may be prematurely relaxing restrictions because they are vaccinated, even though lots of children around them are not? Yeah, you know, it's one of those things that I think I, I often get this question as an HIV primary care provider. My patients are often asking me, you know, so what should I do with this recommendation that we don't have to wear masks anymore? And I just remind patients of two things. One, you want to make sure that you're mindful that even though you're vaccinated, you could still carry COVID. You could be infected with it in your nasopharynx and could potentially still spread it. So you have to think about, you know, my second point, which is, are you around someone who's high risk for getting COVID? And if they get COVID, high risk for not doing well once they're infected. And so that's an older person who hasn't been vaccinated or someone who maybe can't vaccinated because they're immune compromised or someone who's been vaccinated, but their immune system doesn't support them to actually mount a good immune response. If you're around those individuals, then yes, you want to be really mindful of wearing your mask. However, we've seen that children tend to have a much milder case of COVID if they do get sick. Yes, there are those kids that can get very sick and, as we've said, end up in the ICU. But the rates of that are, are, are very, very low compared to you know other groups that have been in high risk. So I think the parents should be mindful, but I think that they should understand if you're vaccinated, the chances of you spreading COVID are less and Kids are not the kind of group that we're very worried once they do kind of get COVID that they would have a horrible, you know, side effect or rather a, a horrible um, disease course once they've been infected. As new national guidance rolls out from the CDC, is there concern that some communities may heed that general guidance, whether about masking or vaccination rates, when the data may suggest a different local reality? So I, I, I keep emphasizing this because I think it's something that, you know, I just said we're cautiously optimistic. We also have to be really mindful that local realities are very different. Even in New York, um, New York City, we have places that have over 70% vaccination rates and we have communities that have, you know, less than 40% vaccination rates. The experience in those communities will not be the same. And we know that in a lot of black and other minoritized populations, 
um, that some of those communities are the ones because of access issues or other concerns that are not getting access to the vaccines and getting immunized at the rates that we'd like to see. And so before everyone gets really excited that, you know, we can rip off our masks and have July 4th and everything is fine, really find out what's going on in your local community. Because if your community hasn't really gotten to the, the, the levels of vaccination rates that we wanna see, and your case infection rates and transmission rates of COVID remain high, you could be at the same risk that you were at earlier in this pandemic when all of us were, you know, super, super worried. As we just noted, President Biden just announced a national month of action to meet his challenge of getting 70% of people in the U.S. vaccinated by July 4th. From what you've seen in your practice, are there lessons from the pandemic that need to be amplified about the reality of our healthcare system and who gets served? As you mentioned, we have several minority communities that have been greatly impacted by the pandemic, and there's also questions as to the access that they may have to vaccination, and I'm referring to Latino and also communities of color. I think that's exactly right. I mean, the biggest lesson we learned from, from COVID, I think, is that people trust they're trusted messengers. And so, you know, if the president, you know, is on TV telling you to get vaccinated, you may not do that until you talk to your primary care provider or until you talk to your abuela or until you talk to other members in your community. And so I think one of the lessons we've learned from this within the health you know, system is let's think about in public health who our trusted messengers are and how do we get into these communities and make sure that they have the information they need to help their own members make the choices that are most helpful to themselves. And I think the second thing we've learned is we have to continue to in, in, invest in primary care um, within the U.S. I think primary care is something that we have seen has had a really important role in this pandemic in terms of when people were going in and getting tested. It's a place that people feel comfortable getting vaccinations. And so, you know, even though we've just gone through this horrible pandemic where we've seen a lot of footage of in hospitals and people, you know, suffering in the ICU, the infrastructure of healthcare in this country really um, that touches most patients is primary care. And we have to think about how we continue to invest in that. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Stella Safo. Thank you for your insights and also your advice today. Have a great day. You too. Thank you. A move by the governor of Texas could spell uncertainty for children living in migrant shelters. Governor Greg Abbott declared the southern border a disaster on Monday and ordered state health officials to stop licensing child care facilities that house certain immigrants. The notice from the Texas Health and Human Services Commission says that by August 30th, operations must wind down for child care facilities that provide care under a federal contract to children not lawfully in the U.S., even though Abbott's disaster declaration is for the southern border. The rule applies to shelters all around the state. It's unclear what this means for thousands of unaccompanied minors living in the shelters. Federal officials at U.S. Health and Human Services say the agency doesn't plan to close the facilities. Meanwhile, in California, undocumented street vendors who have been victims of physical assaults could now benefit from a U visa that would give them a path to legal residency. Jonathan Mejia explains. Attacks on Latino street vendors are becoming more and more frequent, ranging from throwing merchandise to being beaten for no apparent reason. This has always happened. The difference is that now people have cameras, the phones have cameras, so now everything is more out in the open. According to official figures, these attacks have increased by more than 330% in the last few years. Many of the victims are undocumented, which may make some eligible for a U visa. 
The problem is that they don't know about it. Due to this incident on May 24th, I made a police report to the Long Beach City Police, and I need to know if I qualify for a U visa. This attorney explains that the U visa is for victims of crime and that there are three requirements. Number one, you had to be a victim of a violent crime that caused some kind of suffering, mental, physical, emotional. Number two, there must be proof. It can be a police report, it can be a criminal case. And the third one is that you must cooperate with the authorities to get justice in your case. Exactly. That's why the U visa was created, so they don't keep quiet. He also recommends that you look for witnesses and, of course, videos that will help prove that you were a victim of an attack in order to obtain a U visa and ultimately permanent residency. Reported by Juan Carlos Gonzalez in Los Angeles, Jonathan Mejia, U News. Now to New York, where officials are responding to growing reports of landlords trying to use the immigration status of tenants as a way to threaten them. Fabiola Galindo has that report. Blanca Saeteros remembers painfully the days before she became a street vendor, when she used to be a factory worker. They kept a two-week paycheck from me, which they never paid. They told me, show me your papers and I pay you, or I call immigration. Then I left. Tenants who owe months of rent are facing the same threat. Hernando was witness of this situation in his apartment. In the building, there was a guy who never paid rent on time, so his landlord told him, you either pay me or I call ICE. Threatening someone to call immigration or even mentioning their legal status is now considered a penalized crime. The state of New York will now include this in the penal code, and depending on the crime, the person could face fines or even jail time if you as a landlord threat or try to kick out your tenants. Currently, it is illegal to force someone, but now there will be consequences, just when thousands of people owe months of rent after losing their jobs in the pandemic. We know the relationship between tenants and landlords has deteriorated, so we don't want anyone taking advantage of this situation. Legislators hope the new measure will stop salary theft. So many people take advantage of immigrants forcing them to work for less and threatening them, calling ICE. Places like California already approved similar laws. Here in New York, it is only awaiting the governor's signature, which could perhaps lead to other states to follow suit. In Queens, New York, Fabiola Galindo, U News. More of U News after this short break. Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. The effects of COVID-19 will be felt for decades to come. Both parties are very far apart. Approximately 250,000 people have lost their lives. U News covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. Your world, your news. U News on Fusion. Welcome back to U News. Now to Central America, where international pressure seems to have prevented Daniel Ortega's regime from taking presidential pre-candidate Cristiana Chamorro to jail. However, the regime continues to detain her in her own home, surrounded by police. Andrew Peña brings us the latest. 
The Nicaraguan government appears to have slightly changed course after the arrest of presidential candidate Cristiana Chamorro. Police initially executed a search and arrest warrant, which caused a huge national and international reaction. But authorities have now decided to place Chamorro, the daughter of former president Violeta Chamorro, under house arrest. We know that all of her electronic equipment was seized. The internet was cut off and she was completely isolated. That is to say, she is in her house, which is occupied by the police, subjected to a criminal process incubated by the prosecutor's office and by a judge. According to unofficial sources, the head of police operation informed Chamorro that the arrest was modified to house arrest in total isolation. Cristiana Chamorro's legal status is irregular. It is a kidnapping. That is how we, her lawyers, can categorize it. We have not been able to establish any type of communication with Cristiana Chamorro since noon two days ago. Chamorro's relatives insist that the case is political persecution. It is obvious that the prosecutor's office and the judge are getting ahead of themselves in stripping her of her political rights, announcing that there is already a ban where there hasn't even been a sentence. So far, the Ortega Murillo government remains totally silent on the case. Reported by Wilfredo Miranda in Managua, Nicaragua. Andrew Peña, U News. In Mexico, the so-called self-healing guru, Ricardo Ponce, is in serious trouble. Several women now accusing him of abuse. The well-known lecturer has more than 2 million followers on Instagram, and as Gianni Aponte reports, that abuse allegedly happened at his spiritual retreats. Agents of Quitana Ruz Public Prosecutor's Office on Mexico's Caribbean coast arrived at the Acalqui Hotel in Bacalar, very close to the Riviera Maya. The hotel was searched and secured after allegations were made that it was one of the places where Ricardo Ponce, a well-known Mexican spiritual guide and lecturer, supposedly sexually abused women after psychologically manipulating them. The first person to publicly denounce it was YouTuber Mayre Wink. There was no Kundalini awakening. There was nothing but the crudest sex in my history, where Ricardo was looking for his cell phone because he said we must record this. She claims she went to one of his spiritual retreats, for which Ponce charges up to $3,000. Wink realized that the so-called self-healing guru had slept with many of the attendees at his meetings and convinced two women to tell their story. We started having sex, and when I was on my back, I turned around and realized he was filming me. He never asked for my consent. And he starts to touch me. I just remember Michelle was laughing, and Ricardo tells me, I'm not going to force you, but I'm going to do this many times until you want me to. Paola is one of the women who has already reported Ponce to the authorities. In an Instagram message, Ponce said that he has not responded to the accusations because he will do so when he has facts and not speculation. He then thanked all of his followers for their support. Univision also contacted him, but so far we haven't heard back. Feminist groups in Quintana Roo have made a public call to possible victims to speak out to the public prosecutor's office. An Instagram page was created where already several women have told their stories about experiences with the spiritual guide. And already over time, I understood that to begin with, that I was a part of something very dirty and very cheap. Reported by Jessica Zermeño, this is Gianni Aponte for U News. Thanks for listening to U News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow U News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, 
go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. And join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.